is upon me as your teacher um, so that you might hold me to it. Um, I'm going to read Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 3, all the way down through verse 11. Um, We're going to cover this whole section here. Titus 3, starting in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that Those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So I will not be teaching out of Ephesians this morning, but that is okay, because Paul is saying the same thing here, isn't he? Um, His words here should be very familiar to you at this point, because this section of Titus 3 is very similar to what we've been working through in Ephesians 1. Um, But to understand Paul's letter to Titus, we need to understand what its purpose is. Um, It's a little bit different from the letter to the Ephesians. Remember, Timothy is the the pastor of one of the Ephesian churches. He was appointed by Paul in the letters to Timothy to appoint the elders in all the churches in Ephesus. And then the book of Ephesians is addressed to the Ephesian church. Um, Titus is more similar to Paul's letters to Timothy, first and second Timothy. It's written from an apostle to a pastor. Titus was the pastor on the island of Crete, and like Timothy, he was charged with establishing churches there. Paul writes, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So there's two guiding principles we need to understand as we read Titus. First, it's written as a handbook for establishing the churches. You find instructions and expectations for church life. You find commands and exhortations to guide the elders in planting and governing local assemblies. And then you find commands and exhortations for God's people who are a part of these assemblies. Second, this context is laid out uh, as the only context in which Titus really makes sense, right? It's given to elders. It's instructions for elders. And there is, in some sense, a general equity. You might hear me use that phrase from time to time, general equity, when I talk about the commands of God. Every command in Scripture has an immediate context, right? The command is given to the people that it is given to to be applied in the situation that they are in, 
And sometimes the situations we find ourselves in are different, right? We might find ourselves living in a different context than the one in which a command is given. But when I speak of the general equity, what I mean is that there is some sort of fundamental moral principle that applies to everyone in all situations that is sort of undergirding that command. And so while Titus is written to and meant to be applied in the context of the local church to the elders of the local church, there are instructions in this book that apply to you, the sheep. There are instructions in this book that can be applied just in our everyday lives. But there are many instructions in this book that cannot be meaningfully applied apart from the local church. The majority of the instruction from Titus is meant to be and can only be applied in this context. It doesn't make sense outside of the local church. And so this shouldn't really be a new principle for us, right? We've talked about this before. We've talked about this when we are in Ephesians. It's a letter written to the church, meant to be applied by the church in the context of the church. The reason for this is that the gathering of the assembly, the gathering of God's people, is the primary identifier of God's people collectively, right? The primary way you are individually identified as an individual member of the body of Christ is by your profession, that Christ has secured the redemption of his people by his work and his life, death, and resurrection. But collectively, as a body, we are identified as individuals who share that same profession. This is something that churches today and throughout history have missed. We identify with our brothers and sisters by a common profession of the one true gospel, Yet many make this error of marrying their church identity with their profession of the gospel. Right? How do you know that you are saved? I go to Grace Truth Church. Wrong. If the way that you know you are saved is because of some church membership, some church attendance, even if that church preaches the true gospel, you have misunderstood the hope of your salvation. You may have misunderstood the gospel entirely. The body of Christ is identified together under the umbrella of the true gospel, united by a common profession that Christ alone has affected and perfected the salvation of his people. So Titus 3 here is the concluding summary of the letter, and Paul reminds us first who we are apart from Christ, then he reminds us what Christ has done for us to bring us into him. And then he tells us who we are and who we are to be as we persist in him. So Paul begins here in verse 3 of Titus 3 by telling us who we are apart from Christ. He says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasure, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And so we begin our study here with an examination of the nature of man, an examination of who the natural man is, an examination of our flesh. Paul often takes great care to give elaborate descriptions of human nature and state that those apart from Christ 
who live in the curse of Adam are dead. We often talk about human nature and how it relates to the doctrine of original sin in terms of free will. Free will, libertarian free will, liberty of conscience, these are extra-biblical words. These are ideas brought to the table by men. Now, there are words and phrases that I use, that we use, that we collectively together affirm to be truth that aren't native to the language of Scripture. Right? So just because a word is not found in Scripture does not mean that it is wrong or false or heretical. We have countless examples of language that we use to better understand Scripture that isn't really biblical language. So the issue here is that Paul rarely speaks in terms of the will of man. It's not a phrase that Paul used. Instead, he tells us what men do apart from Christ. Right? This idea of free will, these conversations about whether or not we can choose or we would choose, these are philosophical conversations that Paul doesn't really get involved in. He instead speaks more practically in terms of what the natural man does. One of the few times that Paul actually does speak of the will of man is found in Romans 8. If you turn to Romans 8, I'm going to read this section here, starting in verse 5. He says that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, indeed. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So here Paul actually makes a statement about the will of man. He makes a statement about man's ability to to perform good works, about man's ability to affect salvation. He says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, men have invented all manner of false interpretations of this text from Romans 8, right? If you spend any time on social media in Christian circles that talk about theology, this has come up, right? You might hear things like, All people have some measure of God's spirit or God's grace in them. And that is at war with their flesh, fighting to bring everyone to faith. The thing I want you to see here is that when Paul gives a list describing the vices of men, he's talking about the same thing he's talking about in Romans 8.8. The mind that is set on the flesh cannot please God. Man, apart from Christ, apart from the regeneration, the conversion given to us by the Holy Spirit, cannot please God. So here in Titus 3, where we have these descriptions of what men do, we see the same thing in 2 Timothy 3, when Paul speaks of the last days. 2 Timothy 3, starting from the beginning of that chapter, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to the parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, 
treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households. See, you get, you get to verse 5 and you think he's done, right? Avoid such people. He's only halfway there. For among them are those who creep into households, capture weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as John Ace and John Brace opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. They will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Paul does the same thing in Romans 3 when he quotes the psalmist. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of serpents is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. But you have what it takes to choose God. In the former days, in the current days, in the future days, man is guilty, unable to please God. This is the whole testimony of Scripture from Genesis to maps. None is righteous except for Christ. None can please God except for Christ. None is able to secure salvation, to bring you to the Father except for Christ. But notice, Paul was talking in the past tense, right? Back in Titus 3, he says, We were once ourselves foolish, disobedient, led astray. Is he describing what we used to be like? Is he describing what we were like before we were saved? Read the list again and answer the question. Foolish. Have you ever acted foolish after God has saved you? Have you ever been disobedient to Scripture now that you are saved? Have you ever been led astray by nonsense or error? Have you ever spent entire days angry with someone, such as your spouse? Looking for spouses to elbow each other there, right? These things still describe us, don't they? These lists of sins that Paul brings up still describe, in some measure, the lives that we live. So what is Paul talking about? For we were once these things, and yet we are still these things. He isn't talking about your behavior. He isn't saying we once did all these bad things, but now we don't. Because we do. Paul did these things. He says in Romans 7, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, and I do the very thing that I hate. So instead of saying that we once were sinners and now we are no longer sinners, Paul is instead making the declaration that God's people, us, the church, the assembly, we have been made no longer guilty of these Even though we still do these things, we are not guilty of them in the eyes of God. And this is what Paul goes on to explain for us. Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness 
of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, but when... We used to be wicked. We used to be dead in our sins. We used to hate God. We were as far away from God as we could possibly be. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. So we might be under, tempted to understand this appearing to be referring to the incarnation of Christ. Right? John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth that's not what paul's talking about when he writes that the goodness and loving kindness of our savior appeared he's not talking about the incarnation something more personal he's talking about the particular mode the particular mechanism of the calling of his people out of darkness we were once guilty sinners But now we are not because Christ has appeared to us. This appearing of our Savior is none other than the revelation of the gospel of Christ to our hearts and the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. The testimony of the gospel is the appearing of the goodness and the loving kindness of Christ our Savior. Now there's something I want you to understand about this goodness and loving kindness of God. This is something different from God's righteousness. When Paul speaks of the goodness of God, he's speaking of something different from the righteousness of God. This goodness is distinct from God's righteousness. Goodness and loving kindness are describing the manner of the appearing of our Savior in the gospel, not righteousness. The righteousness of God speaks of duty and requirements. Goodness and loving kindness speak of something more, something beyond what is required. We see God's righteousness displayed in his judgment, don't we? Right? When I speak of the law, when I speak of God's justice, right, I always say God demands justice. I've said things like God is compelled by his justice, right? Because God is just, because God is justice, he is compelled to act justly towards the sinner. For the one who lives in wickedness apart from Christ, that justice looks like the pouring out of his wrath. God is righteous to condemn the sinner and God is righteous to condemn Christ on the cross. For the redemption of his people. Christ's work on the cross is necessary for our redemption because God is righteous. God cannot permit the guilty into his presence. He cannot suffer the wicked to live. So in order to permit his people to have eternal communion and unity with him, his righteousness requires that his justice be satisfied. And it is on the cross where Christ pays the penalty for the sins of his people and his people alone. That's the gospel that is 
that has appeared. But that is not why or how this gospel has appeared to us. It has appeared through his goodness and loving kindness. Right? Because while God has a duty to be just, while God has a duty to judge the wicked, he has no duty to save any of us. Because God will not find anything in us which his justice will compel him to love. God will not find anything of us that his righteous demands that he love. Instead, he loves us because he is good and because he is merciful. He's not compelled by his justice to love us. He is compelled by the liberty of his own mercy. God's righteousness does not compel him, but his goodness and his mercy do. And by his goodness and his mercy, he has freely chosen to love us, his people, the least deserving of it. That is the appearing of the goodness and the loving kindness of our Father found in the gospel. And it is Explicitly at this time, this appearing, this moment, this, the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see the gospel and believe it. And it is at this time that Paul says, he saved us. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. When it appeared to us, that is when he saved us. So Paul is identifying an explicit moment in time where we went from being in a state of being guilty before God, damned for our sins, to being no longer guilty before God, saved. And then everything that follows in verses 5, 6, and 7 is a part of this very moment. It's very easy when we read sentences one after another to say that this sentence occurs sometime after the previous sentence. But verses 5, 6, and 7 here are things that happen all at once, all at the moment of regeneration, all at the moment that you become saved. Remember I said God will never find in us anything which he ought to love. But he loves us because he is good and because he is merciful. Paul says the exact same thing. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Nothing in you pleased God to save you, but only God was pleased in himself, compelled by the liberty of his own mercy and love to save you the purpose of glorifying himself and the redemption of his people, for glorifying his son in the marriage of his son to the bride. And this next bit is interesting, and it's, there's something here that's easy to miss that is fundamentally important to our understanding of this gospel and how it works. If you just read through this passage once or twice without dwelling on Paul's arguments, you could miss this bit. Previously, when Paul said that goodness and loving kindness appeared to us, Paul is not only telling us when Christ saved us. He's telling us how. 
There's more wrapped up in this word appeared that I want us to understand. Our Savior has appeared to us in the sense that light has shone upon him. That's what that word literally means. Christ has appeared to us because we were in darkness, but now we are in light. We are blind, our eyes are closed, our ears cannot hear, but now light has been shown upon us. And as Paul continues, remember I said verses 5, 6, and 7 are all a part of this moment. He's not telling us what happens next. He's telling us more about this salvation. Paul gives further details into the method of our redemption. He says, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This regeneration is properly the cause of our faith. This regeneration is the thing that enabled and compelled us to believe. The revelation of the gospel is the means by which the Holy Spirit performs this work of regeneration and renewal. Remember I said, there is nothing in us that compels God to save us. Paul says, the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. This should remind you of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. What we've been studying in Ephesians 1, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What is Paul talking about? Every blessing. Those whom Christ died for, his people, have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have been blessed in every spiritual way. Our sins have been forgiven. God's wrath has been satisfied against us, and Christ's righteousness is our own. And we have been declared holy, set apart in Christ. When Paul says we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, it means that we cannot receive the grace of God in part. We cannot partially receive God's grace. We cannot receive God's grace for salvation and not God's grace for anything else. If you ever read systematic theology, you might see the chapter on grace broken down into different categories, different applications or dispensations of God's grace. One author was able to come up with 15 different types of grace. Regenerating grace, electing grace, sanctifying grace, relational grace, financial grace, traveling grace. I can't even think of 15 different things to put the word grace after. Now there's nothing wrong with this, right? There's nothing wrong with sort of systematizing or categorizing the way in which God relates to us for the purpose of understanding the scope, the breadth of the way God has given grace to us. 
But the problem is when we do this, if we're not careful, we can divide God's grace in such a way that our minds see them as different ways, as distinct dispensations of God's grace. We can make the mistake of dividing God's grace in such a way that we might have received God's grace for regeneration, for salvation, without having received God's grace for peace or maturity. Paul says this cannot be. God's grace is given fully in Christ. This is what it means that the Holy Spirit has been poured out richly in Christ. So back in verse 4 when we said, but when, Paul identifies a particular time in which we are saved, the moment we are regenerated through the Holy Spirit, through the revelation of the gospel to our hearts, and everything that follows in verses 5, 6, and 7 is a part of this moment. Paul gives exposition on what happens the moment we are saved. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So here, Paul makes an explicit statement of what we call justification by faith. At the time of faith. Right? At the moment you were saved, the moment that your eyes were opened, that the Holy Spirit revealed to your heart the truth of the gospel of Christ, Paul says you are justified by his grace. And all of these things work together so that we are made to be heirs together with Christ, according to the hope that is in eternal life. So what Paul has done here is this is where I'm going to get into sort of the expectations that Scripture places upon the elders. Paul establishes for us the foundation of all preaching. He establishes for us the foundation of everything that I am called to do when I stand before you to teach. He says in verse 8, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So here in verse 8, Paul actually gets very practical, right? Verses 3 through 7, he establishes the theological foundation of our hope that we have in Christ. And then Paul tells us here that this is the foundation of how we are to understand good works. This is the foundation of how I am supposed to encourage you to good works. He's giving us the so what. So remember at the beginning I said that Titus is primarily written to Titus the elder. It's instructions for elders. It's a manual for elders for establishing and governing the churches. But verse 8 here really has two audiences. Paul says, Those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are profitable for people. 
And so here, Paul gives a very explicit practical reason why we, the church, you, the sheep, should devote yourselves to good works. These things are profitable. Right? And remember, you should devote yourselves to good works, right? I should encourage you unto good works. I should encourage you to avoid sinful practice. Because scripture instructs us to do that, right? And why should we do these things? Paul says it is profitable. It is good for you. I mean, there are some preachers out there who see that word profitable and see dollar signs. No, it's beneficial. It's good for you. Devote yourselves to good works. Right? And this is sort of congruent with what we know about sin, right? Sin has consequences, right? We understand that sin has eternal consequences, right? Wickedness, sin, earns the judgment of God. God promises that his judgment will be poured out on all unrighteousness. But we know that sin has consequences here on earth too, doesn't it? You pay for your sins today. Sin damages our relationships with one another. Sin can physically harm your body. God has erected the government to execute a temporary justice on sins. And of course, the opposite is true of good works. There are temporary, material, physical, natural benefits to doing good works, to not sinning, right? And there are also spiritual benefits. As we, the church, grow together and closer in our intimacy, as we serve one another, we grow closer to Christ. We grow closer to one another. We grow in our love for one another when we serve each other, when we don't sin against each other, right? Good works are a good thing. And if they weren't, they wouldn't be called good. It is good for me to exhort you unto loving one another. It is good for me to encourage you to serve one another. And it is good for me to encourage you to be killing that sin that is still in your life. And these are good things. And Paul gives very, very specific instructions about how, how I am supposed to do this. Right? This is the expectation that Scripture places upon me, the teacher, upon me, the elder. He gives me an explicit formula for teaching good works, for teaching the putting away of sin to the sheep. And it is very, very not ambiguous. This is a command. He says, the saying is trustworthy, right? This saying is trustworthy. What saying is he talking about here. This saying is trustworthy. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. That is the trustworthy saying. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is the trustworthy saying. 
He's talking about how we were once lost in darkness, dead in our sins. He's talking about how God in his goodness and mercy chose to love those he would call his people, the elect. He's talking about how our Savior has appeared to us through the revelation of the gospel to save us, to justify us, and to sanctify us. He's talking about the spirit of the Lord and the manifold graces that he has bestowed upon us. This is the trustworthy saying in Paul gives this explicit instruction to me that this is how I am to teach you good works. This is how I am to equip you to kill the sin in your life. Insist on preaching the fullness of the pure and simple gospel of grace so that God's people may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Right? So what, what's not here? Basically, everything you see about how we are taught good works and killing sin everywhere else in cultural Christianity. Paul tells us how I'm to teach you good works. And it looks nothing like what we see in the Christianity of our culture. It looks nothing like what you see in the faith of those evangelical cults where sin is judged, right? This typical hellfire and brimstone sermon, this you better quit sinning or Satan will be winning. Sermon style, this is all completely opposed to Paul's instruction to Titus. It's the opposite of what Scripture teaches. You want to teach good works? Insist on the gospel of Christ. You want to teach good works? You want to encourage your brothers and sisters in the faith to put sin to death? Insist on the righteousness of Christ imputed to the elect. Insist on the sins of the elect imputed to Christ and propitiated on the cross. Insist on these things. This is how I am to encourage you unto good works. Right? Because this gospel is the reason that we do good works. It is because Christ has loved us that we love him and want to serve him. And this is consistent with how we should understand church discipline too, isn't it? Remember, church discipline's not punishment. It's not punitive. Turn to Matthew 18. We talked about this a bit last week, and we're going to talk about it again. Right? We can almost substitute Paul's instruction here to what Jesus answered Peter, right? Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will I, my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Which again, shows you Peter thought seven was a lot. 
I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven. Peter, when your brother has sinned against you, insist on the gospel of Christ. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. At each step, if our brother repents, it is as though we have gained our brother. It is as though the gospel of Christ, the righteousness of Christ has been revealed to them and their eyes have been opened and they have repented. When we work through church discipline, it looks like encouraging our brothers and sisters to rejoice in the gospel of Christ. It looks like exhorting our brothers and sisters to cling to the work of Christ. That is how I am to instruct the church. Right? What, what does it look like in cultural Christianity? It looks like guilt and judgment, right? It looks like fear. We keep going back to Matthew 18. Remember, what did Jesus say about causing his children to stumble, causing his children to fear? Tie a giant rock around your neck and hurl yourself into the ocean. If my teaching about good works gives you cause to fear, tie a rock around my neck and throw me into the ocean. Instead, I insist on the righteousness of Christ. I insist on the grace found in God's sovereignty in redeeming his people. Because that is the trustworthy saying. But avoid foolish controversies. Why? Because they make God's children fear. Right, that's what I'm talking about when, when we talk about sort of that putting intellectual requirements on faith. Saying that things that have nothing to do with the salvation of God's people have something to do with the salvation of God's people. Foolish controversy. Makes the people of God fear. Tie a rock around your neck genealogies, right? That's what the Jews were into, right? Remember the Pharisees? Abraham is our father. I guarantee you every single one of them had a piece of parchment in their house where they had their father's name, their grandfather's name, and every single person's name all the way back to Abraham so they could point at that and say, this is my salvation. This is why God loves me. Dissensions. 
quarrels about the law. These are the things where you don't like what someone else did. You don't like how they're acting. These things are unprofitable and worthless. For the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Right, so when I warn you about causing division, right, what does that look like? Again, it's not about causing you to fear. Even if you're the one causing the division. Even if you are the one who is sinning, the one upon which we are exercising church discipline, at every step it looks like encouraging you unto the gospel of grace. It looks like reminding you of what Christ has done for you and what Christ has done for your brothers and sisters. These are the expectations placed upon me as your pastor. And if ever I step on these expectations, let me know. Remember, this saying is trustworthy. For we ourselves were foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. Scripture demands that I insist on these things so that you who have believed in God may be careful to devote yourselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for you, church. And as we live together, as we grow in our intimacy, as we love one another, avoid foolish controversies. Remember, that doesn't mean we can't disagree, and that doesn't mean we can't have fun and lively conversations and debates about these things, about doctrine. But sometimes those disagreements are foolish, and we should forget about them. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best speed, Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, see that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. 
All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. God, we thank you that while your word does give instructions for what is right and wrong, it also equips us to live those things out. It equips us to see your glory, the righteousness of Christ through his work. The power of your Holy Spirit has enabled us to grow, to live, to love one another. And God, as we take of your table, remind us of that body, that body of Christ broken, the blood poured out for the redemption of your people. Let us grow together in this one gospel. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.